0: Hello, welcome to the AGES patient podcast series. My name is Dr. Rachel Green. I'm a general gynaecologist and obstetrician and I'm a proud board member for the Australasian Gynaecological Endoscopy and Surgery Society. We provide education for health practitioners and now also patients. This series has been developed to help educate you, the audience, on a number of gynaecological conditions. Through these programs, I will interview a number of specialists and pioneers in their field. I really hope you will find these podcasts helpful and interesting. Thank you for listening. Hello, I'm Rachel Green, and this is another AGES Patient podcast. And today, I have the absolute delight and pleasure of being joined by Susie Asani. And we're here in Perth together at the annual scientific meeting. Uh, Susie is an associate professor and director of minimally invasive surgery and chronic pelvic pain at the University of Michigan in America. So she's travelled a very long way to be with us in in Perth. Um, So Susie's special area of interest is chronic pelvic pain. And um, how, how common is it? How many patients do you see with chronic pelvic pain?
1: So chronic pelvic pain is very prevalent amongst women it probably affects somewhere between 10 and 15% of reproductive age women um, and that is probably an underestimate 10-15% is what's been reported but we also know from other studies that many women don't actually report uh, the pain that they have to their to their physicians Is there a definition of chronic pelvic pain So It's been defined by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists as any pain in the pelvis, so basically anywhere between the belly button and upper thighs, that is significant enough that leads to some type of functional disability uh, for patients. And so that pain can be on the front side, on the back side, it can radiate to other parts of the body, but essentially pain in the pelvis that is bothersome enough is considered Chronic pelvic pain if it lasts for longer than three to six months.
0: How does a pain become from a, how does it transition from an acute problem to this sort of chronic issue for patients?
1: Well, I don't think we actually know the life course of pain, you know, in all scenarios, and it's probably different in different women. Uh, Many women, when they think back about their pain, they've had a lifelong history of having painful periods and that at some point it's transitioned from having uh, intense cramping with their menstrual periods to having uh, pain that continues um, outside of their menses. Uh, For some women though it starts entirely as pain that's unrelated to their menses so I think there's a lot of different pathways that you can get there.
0: What kind of conditions would you see commonly causing pelvic pain? So we think about endometriosis, and and I think for us as gynaecologists, yeah. we are always being referred women with pain because it must be something gynaecological. Absolutely. You know, obviously there's yep. many many causes. Yeah.
1: yeah. So endometriosis is one of the most common conditions that we identify in women that have painful periods or chronic pelvic pain. Um, when you look at uh, certain studies, it's uh, occurs in up to 50 to 70% of women with the symptoms. But I think it's incredibly important to recognize that even if a woman has endometriosis, they actually tend to be more likely to have other conditions that can also contribute to their pain. And even if a woman does not have endometriosis, there are many other organs in the pelvis that can cause pain. Um, The other thing I want to bring up is, is that You don't have to have anatomic pathology. You don't have to have something that you can physically see in your uterus or in your bladder or your intestines that causes pain. And there are many uh, women where the pain is the disease in and of itself. And it doesn't mean that their pain is less severe, less bothersome, but um, that's what we need to target and not always just the, the organs in the pelvis how do you work
0: through with a patient that yeah. presents you with chronic pelvic pain? How do you go about evaluating a diagnosis and yeah.
1: a management pain for those patients? So... The two most important things are the history and the physical exam. So the vast majority of how I come to at least initial diagnosis is by those two elements. So in terms of the history, you know, it's really important to understand, well, where exactly is the pain? Does it radiate to other parts in the body? Do you have pain in other parts of the body that is related in some way to this pain? And then what are the things that make the pain worse? And what are the things that make it better? Because all of those things can help clue us into, is this, something originating from the uterus or the ovaries? Is this something that's related to the bladder, to the intestines? Is this musculoskeletal, um, which is a very under-recognized and underdiagnosed cause of pain? And the second most important thing is the physical exam. Um, we do a very uh, detailed physical exam looking at all of the different components that could potentially be contributing to the pain, including um, the musculoskeletal system. So we look at the back, we look at the um, joints in the pelvis, we look at the abdominal wall, we look at the pelvic floor, which is uh, very important. We look at the vulva, which is the skin at the opening of the vaginal canal. And then at the very end, the very last thing we do is um, the exam of the uterus and the ovaries Um, and uh, I think by the time we get through the history and the physical, we have a generally a quite uh, good idea or suspicion of what are the potential causes of pain. And I always think about, well, it's not, you know, often when women are suffering from pain for many years, uh, more often than not, they have more than one thing that's going on. And so it's, you know, we, we come up with all the potential contributors, what we like, tend to call pain generators. What are the things that are generating the pain in your particular situation?
0: And gynecologists are not great at doing a physical exam, especially when it comes to joints and muscles and things.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'd never actually even learned the musculoskeletal exam until Mm -hmm. I did a fellowship training in in chronic pelvic pain. And um, it really is incumbent on us to try to do better in teaching the next generation of gynecologists on how to incorporate um, these techniques, because they're really actually quite simple. And it's not that... We then become the experts in treating them, but at least we can get these patients to uh, physiotherapists and other specialists that um, so that we're not uh, not uh, treating the right problem.
0: And what sort of investigations would you normally employ for these patients?
1: Yeah. Uh, in terms of investigations I mean for my clinic we tend to be a referral clinic so for patients that um, have had usual treatments and they come to us but I would say that if you're getting seen for the first time um, probably the most helpful initial investigation is a pelvic ultrasound tends to be the um, most cost-effective the most uh, sensitive the most accurate type of uh, imaging test to look at both the uterus and the ovaries and what we're looking for or, you know, are there any ovarian cysts? Um, are there uterine fibroids? Is there adenomyosis that could explain some of these symptoms? Um, but to be clear, even if you have an entirely normal ultrasound, it doesn't mean that you don't have pelvic pain. And it certainly isn't um, sensitive enough to diagnose uh, uh, superficial endometriosis. We don't pick up scar tissue that way. It's really uh, just meant to identify larger masses or deeply infiltrative endometriosis.
0: So how do you decide when to take a patient to the operating
1: theater? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I would say that um, it's uh, pretty uncommon for us to use surgery as the very first step In most patients so in most patients if they have some type of pain that worsens with their periods so if it's just painful periods alone and most of the month they're fine versus women that have pain every day but then their pain gets worse during their periods one of our very first steps is to suppress and eliminate their periods Um, and it's really only those patients that um, don't respond to that treatment or have another sort of what we call a red flag like a large ovarian mass or any um, type of imaging or symptoms that might suggest what we call uh, obstruction of their urinary tract, so like compression of their bladder or their ureters, which are the tubes that drain the kidneys into the bladder, or... You know, a mass that seems to be obstructing the intestines, but those things are actually quite rare. So, the vast majority of women really should be considered for medical suppression of their periods before going to surgery. Do you have a time frame in, in your mind about how long you
0: would suppress someone for mm-hmm. before you
1: thought, okay, now's now's the mm-hmm. time? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, and you would think that we would have a standard practice. I think many experts would agree that it it's reasonable to try medical therapy for a minimum of three months, possibly six months. Um, And if you, and I think the critical thing is, is not to use hormone suppression such that you still get a period every month, but that you actually eliminate the periods, which is a perfectly safe thing to do in the vast majority of women. Um, And if you can achieve no periods for three months, but are still having bothersome pain and you've treated other things like the musculoskeletal dysfunction um, etc then those would be the patients that i would consider uh, taking to surgery the,
0: the continuous suppression is mm-hmm. a really interesting topic because there is still um, a feeling, particularly within the primary care setting with our general practitioners, that it's a really bad thing mm-hmm. to do. And yeah. I seem to spend a lot of my time and yeah. energy talking to people about why why it's okay to be yeah. on the pill continuously. Yeah. But people yeah.
1: have a lot of anxiety about that. Yeah, yeah the people certainly do. And I think, you know, we see it as we talk to our colleagues across the world that there's Um, a lot of stigma and um, misinformation about not having your period and trying to explain to women it is abnormal not to have your period if you're not on medications that that suppress your period. But when you're on medications that suppress your period, it's actually a very safe thing to do and a very effective first-line treatment for basically any type of pain that worsens with your period.
0: And what about the really young girl that comes mm-hmm. to see you, like the, 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 uh, the teenager that has an issue with the periods? Mm-hmm. Would you still adopt the same policy about suppression? Yeah,
1: yeah no, I would. I think in those patients, um, I would consult with um, our pediatric and adolescent gynecology physicians. I think the main, um, I think it's still very safe to suppress their periods. The only thing that I might modify is, you know, what hormonal methods we would use to make sure that we're not uh, damaging their bone dependence development, because that's a critical time for for bone development.
0: Yeah. And you have a preference, aside from the pediatric adolescent sort of side of Mm -hmm. things. So do you have a preference over the pill or Mirena, Mm -hmm. or do you guys in America ever get into Depo Provera, the the injections?
1: Yeah. No, all of those are very reasonable first-line treatments. I would say that, um, in general, the combination, uh, Uh, estrogen progestin uh, medications are actually very well tolerated and there's a lot of other additional health benefits to it you know that we know about in terms of lifelong reduction the risk of ovarian cancer and bone protection and so I think it's it's a really good option Um, and it's probably one of my first go-to's for the majority of women but in women who haven't tolerated it because of side effects or um, it's contraindicated like they're not able to take it because it's not safe for them, then we'll typically use progestin-only methods. Um, I think if you talk to any uh, gynecologist, the levonorgestrel IUD is one of our favorites. Um, Very well tolerated, highly effective. You can't forget to take it. Very low systemic Uh, hormonal level, so there's a lot of advantages. I would say probably the only small subset of women that um, it wouldn't be my first-line treatment are those that really struggle with ovulation pain or uh, ovarian cysts because it doesn't consistently suppress um, ovulation and cyst production. Um, But even in some women that, you know, we can't find a happy medium, uh, while I recognize that it's off-label, we'll sometimes use both uh, leave an adjustable IUD in addition to some type of oral agent. Um, and some women um, really find that combination to work for them. It wouldn't be the first thing that I jump to, but it is certainly an option. And we definitely still use Depo Provera. I mean, amongst the different options, it does tend to have a Uh, relatively high risk of breakthrough bleeding, so unscheduled bleeding, and that can be very bothersome to women and particularly in women that have chronic pelvic pain or including those that have endometriosis. Anytime they bleed, their pain gets worse. And so if you're having a lot of breakthrough bleeding, your pain doesn't tend to be managed as well.
0: Mirena gets a really bad press yes. here in Australia. I'm it sure it's the same in, in the America. United States.
1: We spend a lot of time Gosh. re-educating yes. patients about it. Yeah. They, they
0: get on the internet and they read such bad stories. Yeah. And I think um, they lose sight of the fact that it can be removed. You yeah. know, I say that to people all the yeah. time that you yeah. take the pill, okay, you stop taking it, yeah. but you have a Mirena inserted. You can go back to your physician and say, this isn't really working out yeah. for me. I mean, there's got to be a reasonable time yeah. frame to allow it to settle. But, you know, it's so reversible. But yeah. people read all this
1: stuff like it will give them long-term side effects yeah. and that, like, none of that's true right yeah no you're absolutely right and we absolutely struggle with those mis- yeah. misconceptions in the in the states as well and I mean I think sometimes it's helpful to remind patients that the only people that often get on yes. and blog and write yes. about these things are patients that are dissatisfied yes. and so yes. they don't really get yes. the balanced view the people that are happy with it are happy with it and they go on with their life and they're you know the satisfaction rate with the levonorgestrel yes. IUD is 70 to 90%. And so it's, it's um, unfortunately, it's just the, the patients that have the um, bad experiences, which, you know, are legitimate. But again, like you said, it's reversible. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like it, we take it out. I couldn't agree with you more. I I say that every day, you know,
0: you have a Mirena, you're very happy with it. You're probably not going to go on the internet and blog about how wonderful it was. It's such a shame that that really clouds. And it does make it very difficult, I think, as a clinician, when you put that towards a patient and they, oh, I've read this and I don't want it.
1: Yeah, I don't know about you, but some patients find it helpful to know that, amongst female OBGYNs, it's actually the most prevalent, most commonly used method of contraception. So yes. if that's like what we want that's for ourselves, why. then then maybe it helps some patients know that, you know, well if it's if you recommend it for yourself, maybe maybe yes. it's not that bad. It's not that bad. <laughs> and and do you use on ever? Um I I don't tend to use it as much because of the breakthrough bleeding um, that it's similar to the Depo-Provera. Um, I certainly see patients that have it and they're satisfied with it, but um, I, the breakthrough bleeding risk is is moderately high, and so um, it's not necessarily my first go-to, but in terms of the mechanism, like the way that it works. Um, uh, it should have relatively equal efficacy, you know, in those women that tolerate it. Certainly in the
0: phase one trials, when yeah. they looked at, uh, you know, the general effects of mm-hmm. Implanon, they did find a massive reduction in pelvic pain and, and pain with the yeah. periods. Yeah. But unfortunately, the trade-off yeah. is that yeah. you just really can't, uh, you can't predict what someone's bleeding yeah. experience is going to be with it. And it yeah. can be very unsatisfying for those patients. Yeah,
1: no, absolutely. But again, you can take it out. If you don't like it,
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, absolutely. Yep. Although it's probably a little bit, it's it's harder. a bit harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's go on and talk about analgesia because uh-huh. you know, obviously, here in Australia, you've been talking at the meeting about opioid use. Yeah. So you know, narcotic-type analgesics yeah. like codeine. And in Australia now, uh, we used to be able to buy codeine over the counter, and that's been a fairly recent change for us here because we also have a huge problem with with codeine-based yeah. painkillers. So yeah. I know that you certainly have some strong views about. Yeah. You know, is it useful for patients with pelvic pain to be taking narcotic analgesics?
1: Yeah, yeah I would say that um, it's it's become increasingly clear that the use of opioids, narcotics for um, non-malignant pain is, is really discouraged. Um, and it, I, I want to sort of balance, you know, what we say is a general preference, like our guidelines versus, you know, Individual shared decision making between a patient and the provider, you know, and um, but for the vast majority of patients, um, we would not recommend opioids because. Um, the risks of opioid use, the risk of dependence, the risk of misuse, and the risk of things like uh, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, this this phenomenon in which um, they basically become less effective and you tend to escalate doses. All of these negatives uh, eventually outweigh the, the benefits. Um, and so depending on the different mechanisms of pain. It's also quite clear that opioids actually are not effective in patients that have what we call centralized pain or pain that's due to um, changes in, on the level of the brain and spinal cord and the way that our bodies process pain information. And in those patients, it actually looks like they're endogenous, they're like natural opioid levels are so high that they saturate all the receptors and that uh, taking extra opioids don't actually tend to help. So we really use them very, very sparingly and in very uh, limited cases. And so if you see a patient that's already on high
0: doses, will you work through a a program to try and reduce that dosage? Yeah,
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I would absolutely try to work with them and whoever's prescribing their medications Mm -hmm. to both come up with a you know, multimodal treatment plan that addresses their pain from other angles. Yes. And as those things take effect to gradually wean them, wean them off opioids. And I think the other big danger signal that um, is not uh, being recognized now until recently are um, the significant risks associated with taking a combination of opioids as well as benzodiazepines, things yes. like Valium and yes. Xanax. Those actually, the combination of those two can actually be incredibly dangerous. Yes. Yeah.
0: So your preferred would be something more
1: like paracetamol and mm. non-steroidals? Absolutely, absolutely for um, for what we consider breakthrough pain. But I think ultimately the the best approach is is treat the underlying problem when when it's identifiable uh, with hormonal suppression. Um, and then we also know that there are a lot of non-pharmacologic therapies that can actually be very, very helpful for patients that suffer from chronic pain.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that because yeah. I think as physicians sometimes we're not always that good. You know, yeah. you, you write a script off you go, yeah. so yeah. you don't think about all of those non-sort yeah. of pharmacological yeah. things. So, what sort of suggestions do you yeah. have for your patients?
1: Yeah, so I so the three most helpful things um, that can be very that are that have been shown consistently across a lot of different chronic pain conditions that are effective are education. Um, so actually, just helping patients understand the biology of pain um, globally and sort of. In their particular situation um, exercise and it actually doesn't probably matter what kind of exercise you do um, but uh, some type of exercise um, whether it's weight-bearing or not whether it's like in the pool, you know, walking, yoga, all of those things have actually been shown in multiple studies to actually help pain. And it probably uh, works through multiple pathways, you know, on the level of the brain and spinal cord. Um, And the third thing that's uh, been shown to be very helpful is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's, um, uh, something that you can do either one-on-one with the pain psychologist and, um, or there's actually a lot of online modules that patients can uh, pursue that basically help uh, patients modify their behavior in response to pain. So it's not the same thing as CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety or for depression. There are actually very specific uh, treatment protocols specifically for, for pain
0: I think uh, we should be prescribing exercise a lot yeah. more. I mean, I'm a absolutely. very physically active yeah. person, and I think as a, as an athlete and as an mm-hmm. exerciser, you, you also do get used to having a, a degree of discomfort. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go out and you run 15 kilometres, you're kind of used to having a little bit of discomfort yeah. in your body, and you become yeah. a little bit more accepting yeah. of that. Like it's okay. Yeah. You know, pain doesn't have to be mm-hmm. a bad thing. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. But we also want to remind our patients because a lot of our patients have chronic pain you know, it, sometimes their pain is worse when they exercise, but we're not talking about running marathons. We're not yes. talking about going on a yeah. 5K every day. We're just talking about being active. Yeah, so, something. and it's whatever it is that it's just taking a walk for a couple blocks, doing, um, you know, just light physical activity, doing um, some resistance exercises in the pool, whatever it is, it just needs to be small and gradually, You know, increases over time. Um, You know that fits that that person's um, body and their lifestyle, but those things actually make a huge difference. And you work in a multidisciplinary
0: team, so you have quite a few different inputs coming into the patient. Mm -hmm. So you you would use physical therapy, um, physiotherapy, quite commonly with your patients. Absolutely, I,
1: I actually routinely tell my patients that the physiotherapists will likely help them more than i can help them um and uh, we work with a huge um, network i mean the states are very big and Um, And I don't live in a very uh, urban setting. And so a lot of patients actually have to drive very Mm -hmm. long distances to get to a pain center. But we have a large network of physiotherapists across our region that, you know, depending on where the patient lives, we try to get them to someone that's within a reasonable distance. Because the important thing about physiotherapy is that you see them on a regular basis. And so most typically the minimum treatment Frequency is at least once per week, and the duration is at least six to 12 weeks. So it's really important that they make a personal connection with that that physiotherapist and that it's practical and feasible to get there. What kind of things would the physio do for the patients? Well, I actually, until I became a lot more active in the International Pelvic Pain Society, so it's an international group of um, healthcare providers that are um, dedicated to the improving the lives and care of uh, patients with uh, chronic pelvic pain, both men and women. And about 50% of our um, members are actually physiotherapists. And until I started talking with them, actually, they're... Their approach is just as heterogeneous as our approach as physicians. And so there are so many different techniques that they use. I think probably the most central thing that most of them use is what they call manual therapy. Um, and what you know what we typically see in patients with um, chronic pain is that they have, contract uncontrolled contraction as well as shortening of the muscles that all contribute to the core. So the pelvic floor, the abdominal wall, the back, the diaphragm. And so there are a lot of manual therapy techniques that they use to try to lengthen and relax those muscles. But beyond that, there are actually a lot of things that they use. And, you know, unfortunately, there isn't... Um, Easy ways to do like rigorous research studies, and so there's it's very I think um, applied and um, individualized based on the patient. But there are ultrasound techniques, there are laser techniques. Um, there's a lot of mind-body cognitive behavioral therapy that they actually do with patients, and you know because they um, get a full hour with patients once a week, you know I think it's probably just. That relationship that's also therapeutic, you know, for the patient. Um, but I certainly am not an expert in all of the different approaches. But um, you know, if it doesn't work with one physio, I think sometimes it's potentially worth trying to see if getting um, into treatment with a different one with a different approach might be helpful.
0: Do you believe in acupuncture? I know quite a lot yeah. of the physios now yeah. do you know, yeah. acupuncture yeah. or dry needling. And
1: yeah. No, I actually am a big believer in both acupuncture as well as acupressure. And, you know, while a lot of studies are pretty mixed and there are not a lot of studies that specifically look in uh, chronic pelvic pain, I think many of the really well done, well controlled studies do show a benefit um, in patients that um that have chronic pain. Uh, actually, one of my uh, colleagues and collaborators uh, studies it uh, quite intensively in, in patients, in a wide group of patients, including those that have fibromyalgia, as well as um, post-cancer pain and fatigue and have quite um, compelling data to show that not only can it improve pain, it can um, improve the fatigue that's associated with, with patients that suffer from chronic pain. So. Um, And, you know, there's little harm, right? And so little harm other than the cost. Um, So I think this trying to come at it at every angle is incredibly important.
0: So let's talk about surgery, because yeah. I know I still see patients that say, yeah.
1: oh, can I have a hysterectomy yeah.
0: because I've got pain? Mm-hmm. You know, Is a, is a hysterectomy yeah. going to help? Is a surgery in particular that will benefit yeah. patients with pelvic yeah. pain?
1: Yeah, uh, that's actually an excellent question. You know, hysterectomy is the most common surgery we do in women outside of cesarean section. Um, and uh, But we actually don't have a lot of data that says, well, how effective is hysterectomy? So um, when you look at... Um, a summary of studies: um, anywhere between 15 to 25 percent of women, if you follow them, six 12 months, two years after hysterectomy um, have some degree of pain that never got better after their hysterectomy. And somewhere between one and 15%, probably closer to 5% of women have a new pain that um, they didn't actually have before hysterectomy. So it is not curative. And um, even if you look at those that have both of their ovaries out Mm -hmm. at the time of hysterectomy, um, some portion of those women continue to have pain afterwards. So it's not curative for every woman. And we currently just don't have the ability to predict, well, will you get better uh, versus, you know, a different patient. We know it cures abnormal bleeding, but uh, it's not consistent with the pain. Are there any pathologies in particular that you think would benefit? So mm-hmm.
0: I know I was talking to yeah. Hans before about adenomyosis and mm-hmm. he says in Europe they don't have adenomyosis. It's such a big thing here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Everyone's obsessed with adenomyosis mm-hmm. and that is mm-hmm. obviously where the yeah. lining grows into the muscle of the womb and it's yep. thought to cause cramping with the periods. And so surely
1: mm-hmm. if you don't have adenomyosis that, that must make pain better. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, it's actually it's interesting. I mean, there actually aren't a lot of studies that have looked at it. There's a pretty old study that said if you do or don't have adenomyosis that you're just as likely to fail versus have success with your hysterectomy for pain. It's one small retrospective study, so it's hard to say. We do know that women that have adenomyosis are also more likely to have endo. Um, We also know that if you have some kind of pelvic pathology like endometriosis compared to women that have totally at least visibly normal anatomy, you're you're less likely to get better with your hysterectomy if everything looks normal. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, all of these studies are actually pretty small, and I think there's so many factors that are that are interrelated. It's it's uh, we currently just aren't smart enough to be able to pick them out on an individual patient, and so. For me, when I see patients, you know, I would consider hysterectomy last resort. We do a fair, actually, amount of hysterectomy in the United States. Um, It's it's not uncommon to have a hysterectomy, but I'm very reluctant. Uh, You know, the two things are is, you know, if you have abnormal bleeding, you know, we can cure that. And if we can cure your pain, then that's fantastic, but it is not a guarantee. And the other key thing is, is unless there is... Uh, very severe adhesions or very severe endometriosis. We do everything we can to preserve the ovaries uh, because we don't want to put women into surgical menopause or menopause from their hysterectomy because that's not more likely to alleviate the pain.
0: Yeah, so that's another really interesting
1: discussion I get into with patients. You know,
0: why can't you take my ovaries away? Or Mm -hmm. menopause is okay, I'm not scared about that. But it's so much more than just menopause, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. There's definitely very clear data now that premature menopause due to surgery increases your lifetime risk of developing heart disease. Um, And actually, women tend to actually die younger um, if their ovaries are taken away prematurely than after. And we know that even... In menopause, the ovaries produce low levels of hormones that seem to be very important for both your sexual function as well as your overall health. So um, unless you have a family history or some type of genetic predisposition to developing um, uh, hormone-related cancer like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, um, it really is in a patient's best interest to keep those ovaries even even, uh, in menopause. Yeah. So then
0: I get asked the question, why don't I just yeah. have HRT? Uh-huh. And then you say, well, if you're going to have your
1: ovaries taken away and have
0: HRT, why don't you just leave your ovaries behind? Yes.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's uh, it's. I mean, it's a really good point. But when you actually look at women, they even if they say they're going to do it, actually most women stop. And so and it's and what we can replace artificially is still not the same because HRT includes estrogen, sometimes progesterone, depending on the situation. But it doesn't um, replace the low levels of testosterone. It doesn't replace the low levels of other hormones like DHEAS that our ovaries make even in menopause. And so it's not quite the same. Quite the same. yeah. Yeah. So what about some of these novel things like Botox? Mm-hmm. Does that yeah. have a role
0: with chronic pelvic pain?
1: Yeah, so um, botulinum toxin or Botox is a paralytic uh, agent that can um, paralyze uh, muscles and probably actually also has an effect on inflammation and central like spinal cord changes, um, and it has been shown to be beneficial in patients that have pain that's related to overactive muscles. So um, the clearest data is in women that have a condition called vaginismus, mm-hmm. uh, where they have such tight contractures of the pelvic floor muscles that they're unable to place a tampon. They're unable to have any type of vaginal penetration. Um, but we're also, you know, seeing data to support its potential use in patients that, don't have such extreme muscle spasm, but you know things like pelvic floor myofascial pain. Um, we use it, um, or urologists use it in the in the bladder for uh, painful bladder syndrome. Um, it's been used for rectal fissures because that's probably related to. Uh, contractures of the the spasms of the pelvic floor muscles as well. So there's definitely a role. Um, I would say, though, it's always in conjunction with physiotherapy. So we don't do it instead of uh, PT or physiotherapy. We do it in, con- usually, you know, we start with the, the physiotherapist and only in those patients that don't get better, then we do it in combination with the PT and the patients tend to get a better outcome.
0: So what's your take-home message for these poor women that yeah. just feel like they've struggled for years with yeah. this pain and no one's yeah. listening to them? And, you know, yeah. what's your kind of take-home message to those women?
1: Well, I mean, I would say the take-home message is, is that we as physicians, we as society, we're slowly increasing the awareness of um, painful pelvic painful pelvic conditions and that, you know, if you don't feel like you're being heard by your provider, then... Then you just need to keep advocating for yourself and, and shop around. There are a lot of advocacy groups across the world. There's a huge amount of um, education and money um, happening here in Australia and New Zealand. Um, you guys have done a fantastic job of increasing the awareness in endometriosis and other pain conditions. And I think um, uh, if you don't feel like you're being heard, you, um, you, you know, there are people out there that are trained in this and, and trying to get yourself to those specialty groups um, is, is really um, likely to be very helpful.
0: I think the future's bright, really, yeah. where they see darkness. You know, potentially there's still a lot of hope and, and treatment options for these women. Absolutely, that's a great way to put it.